This episode of All the President's Minutes on the One Heat Minute Productions feed is brought to you by bellacatering.com.au. Guys, Bella Catering, one of Sydney's best catering companies, have pivoted to home delivery in the greater Sydney area as a result of COVID-19 pandemic. Don't cook if you're having friends over. Why worry about guests and what they're going to eat and all that sort of stuff while there are revolving things about how many people you can or can't have in your house? Ignore all that. Look at the policy to make sure you're not in trouble and then order your catering from Bella. They are great. We love Glenn, we love Maria, we love the entire family that are involved and they're really good people. They're our people. They're pivotal in us having this show. So thank you guys so much for your support throughout this entire process. Thank you all for listening. This is the 99th episode of All the President's Minutes. This week we have episodes 99, we have 100, 101, and now 102. Oh my goodness. I'm throwing five episodes up this week. Let's get started. Yes, I say the president is the wrong man for the job. But you're known as the reporter who doesn't put his thumb on the scale. And yet, at the end of this book, you do just that. It's a conclusion based on evidence, overwhelming evidence, that he could not rise to the occasion with the virus and tell the truth. And one of the things that President Trump told me in the presidency, there's always dynamite behind the door. The real dynamite, it's President Trump. He is the dynamite. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to All the President's Minutes. I'm your host, Blake Howard. It is the 99th episode of All the President's Minutes. It has one of the most frightening images, I think, in the entirety of United States cinema. And it was a big minute for me to assign a person to. There is a man that I've been chasing relentlessly because he is A, one of the busiest men I know when it comes to creating great audio content. Um, B, just kind of one of the best doing it. And C, um, the only person I know who has more podcasts than me. So it feels like if I didn't talk to this man, there's no way that the show would have been complete. Um, when you talk about the seminal film podcasts that are in the entire landscape, you talk about shows like Slash Filmcast, which he's a producer and co-host on. You talk about um, a, a show that is so near and dear to my heart, but uh, has now finally come back after a few years. The One of the greatest character actors of all time, Stephen Tobolowsky and his show, The Tobolowsky Files. This man produces that show. Uh, what has been really amazing for me who has been doing this podcast exercise during 2020 and COVID is to watch this man's incredible show, Culturally Relevant, but I've been watching it and consuming it on Twitter mostly as a live broadcast in sort of this confessional uh, way of how, uh, how they're experiencing and, uh, the, the, the pandemic firsthand. But it's with my distinct pleasure to welcome to All the President's Minutes, the first time that we're getting to chat, David Chen. Dave Chen, mate, thank you so much for being a part of the show. You know, that's the nicest anyone has ever spoken about me, and I include <laughs> my wife. <laughs> I'm just joking. Uh, very, very kind, Blake. Uh, it's, it's such a pleasure to be here. And uh, I know scheduling these things is a challenge, but... Uh, uh, I obviously admire what you're doing and admire that your, your overall very positive attitude 
oh, uh, in which you. you approach things. And so I'm like, you know what? I don't, I, I very rarely do guest podcasts because it's such a pain to like maintain all of my podcasts. You know what I mean? Yes. But I'm like, you know what? I'm going to, let's, let's do this thing, Blake. I want to learn about <laughs> how to watch all the president's been one minute at a time. Yeah. Well, look, it's, it's, if, if, if I'm only a market research for a future minute by minute podcast, the only thing that I'd ask is to invite me, Dave, on whatever that uh, future show is. Um, no, I'm just kidding. Look, it's no, deal. It, it's a deal. <laughs> no, it's, it's, you know, I, that's why I, I so appreciate it. You're a, a constant machine when it comes to different artistic pursuits. So like, you know, I know what your calendar can be like. And I think that some, in some ways, you know, for those of us who have produced and whether it was reflexively as part of the pandemic or, 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 or as a coping mechanism, it's like my production output personally of like, I'm like, okay, let's all those things that were maybe on hold because life had other things going on. I'm like, let's do them. Let's, let's get everything out. Let's do absolutely everything. But I'm so pleased to get you for this show this episode as I, I sort of prefaced 99 episodes in of about 136 137 in the end um one of the most frightening images can you tell me a little bit about and you've covered it so much on on your live streams on twitter and in culturally relevant the podcast but can you talk to me a little bit about like having this movie now back in your consciousness and your current experience of contemporary america because it just feels like like many times I've kind of like had you on in the background while doing other things while I'm working throughout the day and watching a live stream happen and you, you talking. And I, I sort of say like, there's a lot of synergies with just that sentiment. And then all of the guests have been on the show so far. Yeah. So uh, I rewatched the movie to uh, prepare for coming on this podcast. And um, I had a few reactions as I'm watching this movie. First of all, I think it's still a really effective piece of, filmmaking you know and yeah. you can totally see how like modern day journalistic movies were inspired by this movie right like um yeah. spotlight being probably one of the most recent examples that uh, obviously did very well uh from a critical and an awards perspective in the united states um so uh, this is a movie whose impact from a cinematic standpoint i think is still felt to this day um so that was one thing that i was struck by another thing i was struck by is um the fact that uh, the movie feels like so quaint yes. compared to uh, the daily uh, indignities that uh, the United States you know, <laughs> highest office uh, suffers, you know, um, and just like, obviously what, what is depicted in this movie is actually like pretty frightening and, and conveyed in like a very frightening fashion and that like, Hey, there's people watching you. These are dangerous people. Like, and, um, the this sense of creeping paranoia is pretty effectively depicted in the film, but the sheer quantity of crimes uh, is just feels much lower than uh, or much lower in magnitude, right? Than like the the stuff that we're seeing on a daily basis here in the United States. I mean, just just today, the thing that really struck me is. Um, there was a story in uh, the Washington Post today about how like um, the United States Postal Service had a plan to send uh, five reusable face masks to every household in America and it was blocked by the White House. And it's like, oh my this, God. this is a, this is, you know, uh, a, a huge scandal is not the 
the right word, but it's a, it's a huge story that in any other time period in our lives would dominate for weeks on end. We will forget about it in 48 hours. <laughs> it, it'll be old news by the time we, this we, podcast is released. I'm like, we will forget about it by the end of this podcast. Is <laughs> by the end to... of this conversation. <laughs> you know, so the idea that like, uh, like what, what happened, the events depicted in all the presidents men would have world altering implications um, it's just like, oh man, those were the days. You know, those were the days when like this stuff used to matter. Um, and, and also, uh, those are the days that one story day could have like the scrutiny that it deserves. Yes, you know, because I think that what we often view is like you go, wow, that one story from the post that has that information is an amazing like lead like as a story itself, it is a lead to a greater investigation and to see who the culpable people were and should anyone be held to account. But all of those follow-ups, those natural follow-ups to stories and those natural things, they just get consumed by whatever the next scandal is. And so in a way it's like, you know, it's the same as like people changing, you know, things really quickly in the rapid states of change in the, you know, makeup of businesses and people going, oh, could we ever have a flexible workforce that worked at home? Like a lot of businesses like, yep, we can. And, you know, starting to, you know, really tap into that sort of like, you know, startup freelance mindset of like, well, we can have teams and businesses that run all over the place. Those things happen so quickly now as well. But like in the sense of the news media, you know, I spoke to, um, you know, one of the national political editors of Reuters, James, um, Oliphant and James and I spoke at episode 71 and then again at 97 and in our both of those conversations just the stories in between 20 episodes which was really like about eight weeks was unbelievable like the the the, the amount of new scandals the amount of new things and how other things had just been disappeared off the face of the earth it's I mean I think we might spend 2021 catching up on 2020 news stories uh, you think that, I mean, there, there's a lot of assumptions in what you just said, like that the, <laughs> the pace will slow down. If, if anything, I think it might actually accelerate, but we'll see. Um, but yeah, I, I agree that just the pace of things is, uh, is I- incredible right now. And then the final reflection as I was watching this movie again is the fact that uh, Woodward um, Bob Woodward remains a, a fairly significant figure in American journalism, even to this day. And literally the, the week that I watched this movie um, to, for this episode, uh, he was in the news because of uh, an interview that he had conducted with Donald Trump for a book that has just been published called Rage in the United States. And um, it had theoretically valuable information about the coronavirus yes. uh, that was not released to the public until the publication of this book. And he went through a whole kind of uh, news cycle about why he didn't disclose this information sooner. And he, he, had, he had kind of justifications and defenses for that. But this is a guy that um, even through the decades that this movie has been released since 1976, so it's been, what, uh, 44 years, right? Yeah, 44 years. Um, 44 years later is still arguably doing work that is uh is valuable from a journalistic perspective and so this guy has staying power man (laughs) um so that's the thing that that kind of came to mind as well uh arguably like people many people really disagreed with his decision to not publish relevant facts and he again he has explanations for that but um you know regardless of whether you agree or disagree he is still obviously quite relevant so yeah i i you know I don't, I don't think it's, um, 
I don't think anyone's wrong to have any opinion on that, whether he should have revealed it earlier or shouldn't have based on the history of what it is. But it's like one of the things you would say is like, this is a guy who kept one of the greatest sources um, under wraps until he was dead for 40 years. Um, you know what I mean? With, with deep throat. And, and so it's like his past behavior predicted his future behavior in that, like, this is a guy who validate, you know, keeps his sources. And, and I think personally, my opinion is like, I think 18 hours of interviews that can be litigated with what the ways that Donald Trump had lied, lied to the American people, 18 one hour interviews is much better than one, one hour interview in my mind, because I think that the more that people are going to mind these interviews, the more they're going to see, you know, lies and, and just, you know, flat out terrible things, uh, you know, and, and be able to sort of correlate what was depicted in public versus in private. But, you know, speaking as a person who's been now 99 episodes into a podcast about Woodward and then he becomes the news cycle, I'm like, what the hell is going on? Like, I just, yeah. I can't, I can't imagine. Um, thanks for, thanks for inviting me on <laughs> during the week where the podcast was most relevant from a news yeah. perspective. Um, well, here, here we are. Uh, and so just, just to clarify in case people don't know exactly what we're talking about um, in, I think it was like February Trump revealed like that um, he understood that the virus was a big problem, that it was very deadly, uh, deadlier than the flu, and that it was spread via airborne particles. Airborne transmission, um, yep. And uh, Woodward, in an interview with the Washington Post, defended himself, saying that, uh, number one, he didn't know what Trump's source was. He didn't know whether what Trump was saying was even true. Yes. And number two, he sees his job as giving readers the full context, the full story. So yeah. he, he's not the kind of guy that's like, oh, I'm going to just push this out there um, for a one day kind of news bump. He's like, I want to put it in the context of a book where you can kind of see all the like surrounding circumstances and all that stuff. So that was kind of his defense. Again, you can buy it or not, but just want to make clear because we've been talking a little bit around the details. So. Yeah, no, that's that, 100% right. Well, now, now we're also in a moment where there is a reaction to a story from these two Washington Post reporters played by Robert Redford as Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein is played by Dustin Hoffman. These guys have outlaid their Mitchell revelations into the paper. We've seen a great little sequence where there's a lot of non-denial denials. And one of Bernstein's sources who we've seen periodically popping up in, in the film um, uh, by an actor by the name of Jess Osuna, who actually plays as credited as Joe slash the FBI agent. So Joe uh, slash FBI agent has proactively reached out. And, and part of the reason why I wanted to talk to Dave about this particular minute, such a, a person who's such a film, uh, you know, a, a, a film analyst in a way and has a great critical understanding of the function of things is the paranoia in this minute, Dave is just so palpable. And, and it's a moment that's so ambivalent and can easily be missed at any kind of glancing blow that you have at this movie if you're just sort of passively watching. Um, but I love it so dearly. So I'd love if we could to dive into the 99th minute together. Folks, if you're, if you're trying to find where that is on your dial, um, it is one hour um, and 38 minutes up to one hour and 39 minutes. So 99 minutes into the film. Dave and I are going to watch that minute together right now once again, and then we're going to come back and unpack it for you and talk Use it as a portal to talk everything about this movie.
There it is, my friend. All right. I, I, I like the professionalism of stopping it mid-sentence at the end of the minute. <laughs> yeah, that's that's in, in, in the immortal words of Neil McCauley, uh, Robert De Niro's character from Heat. That's the discipline. That's where we, where we are right now. We're going to start here, but um, everyone who knows listening, we do occasionally relentlessly cheat, but we use it as a portal to talk. And I think that, man, that scene with Joe and Washington, the actual town being turned against these guys at the beginnings of this minute, the quick snap from the random person who seems to be a tourist going into the White House grounds. Um, It's just such a fantastic scene that really starts to lay the groundwork for the sort of bombshell revelations that their lives are in danger later. I just love this scene. I love that shot. I love Joe's nervousness. I just love this whole, this whole minute. I think it's a great minute overall um i gotta agree with you and um i i love that shot because it's a uh it's a subjective shot right it is from the po it's basically a pov shot yes um you're you're looking at that guy standing in line from the pov of dustin hoffman's character and i also like you know it's a it's a shot where um you see all these tourists lined up and so basically, if you want to infiltrate that tourist line, um, you need to be thinking, you need to be playing 3D chess. You know, if you're, if yes. you're like surveilling, uh, if you're surveilling Carl Bernstein, you need to be like, all right, I'm going to get in line. I'm going to blend in. So there, it basically shows some level of sophistication yes. on the level of the surveillers um, as opposed to just, hey, a random guy hiding behind a tree, touching his ear, you know, <laughs> yes. who's going to like reveal himself as super obvious. Um, and it really does kind of hammer home this idea that like anyone could be watching people probably are watching, but even if they're not, you feel they are watching and that is enough. Right. And, and to, to underscore, I think the sophistication is watching this again in preparation with us. I, I, I really dialed into Joe because there seems to be recognition, like the way that I'm reading it more and more, like, and maybe it's that sort of obsessive viewing practice that happens as part of preparation for this show is when I see Joe glance over to that line and then turn his back to sort of tactically tie his shoe. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. As you said, it's, it is 3d chess for him to be, to be there and be taking all these passive photos that mean nothing. It's then also a bit of like recognition of how serious it is because if Joe can look over and go, that person looks like one of our surveillance guys, or that person looks like someone I know in the surveillance community, then he, you know, makes sure that he's not going to be caught on photo with Bernstein or like, or at least have a, you know, a front on face on that. He's a, he's a source for the Washington post. And so, yeah, it I guess, I guess it was tricky. important to him. It was important to him to not have his face seen. With <laughs> yes. Him, right? yes. Uh, although couldn't you, couldn't you see the body type? Couldn't they be like, Hey, this is your, <laughs> you have this exact uh, suit, Joe. Like I know that I knew it was you. I knew it was you, you know, uh, Joe, these are your shoes, man. Like I'm showing you, these are your shoes. You know, we've teased you about these loafers for a long time. Uh, Yeah, no, look. The thing I was was struck by when watching this movie, right, is how many people were willing to talk to these guys. Yeah. Right. And you, you think to yourself, wow, like all these people like willing to imperil their livelihoods to talk to this guy. And then you think about it for like five more seconds and you realize like, the velocity of leaks coming out of this White House, this current White House that we have in the United States is extremely high. 
It, yes. It's like, and, and you kind of think like, oh, people, people want to talk. They want to unburden themselves, right? Yes. I don't think I don't think that's the case for all administrations. I think like for instance, like the Obama administration was like fairly leak proof. Mm. Um, certainly not perfect, but like they, it was not nearly this level as we're seeing right now. And um, and I think like you get you get that insight in this movie is like people want to talk, even if they're jeopardizing themselves, even if they're putting themselves in a situation where any passerby looking at any image of these two guys together would know that it's Joe played by Jess Osuna. Yes. yes. Um, but you know, maybe the tying the shoe is really gonna, gonna make the difference before it was like, you're going to lose your job, but he tied his shoe. So now he's not going to make <laughs> Yeah. He's crouching. Uh, sir, I'm clearly not telling him anything. I can't, how could I? I'm tying my <laughs> how shoe. Could, how could I be talking if I'm crouching? That doesn't make any sense. That sounds like a Trump line. That sounds like a <laughs> Trump media analyst coming out and going, look, how yeah. could he even talk to this person? He was crouching. He was um, crouching. He couldn't, he couldn't hear. If he, even if he wanted to, he couldn't say, say anything. Oh, man. But no, you're, you're, you're right. It's like the um, – it was right back – and I spoke to a, an actor by the name of Bo Roberts in the lead-up to the bookkeeper scene, and he had a reading on the bookkeeper's sister in that moment, which I think has, has, has changed my outlook on, on – exactly what you're talking about people being compelled to talk. It's like at the time, you know, Judith Hoback Miller, the real bookkeeper um, played by Jane Alexander in this movie um, is there. And the sister, sister letting Hoffman in has always been seen a bit more of a, um, it's been a bit more about Bernstein's craft as a journalist, you know, he's bullying his way into that conversation, into that dialogue. But I think what I really wanted to touch on with you is that, Bo had a reading of like, I think the sister wanted to let him in because she knew that she could help her sister unburden herself of the pressure of this information by revealing it, even as a, you know, as an anonymous source, because the pressure and the paranoia and all those things without being able to confess it and, and start to, you know, help to push those, you know, the people who hold, you know, th these administrations to account as in journalists toward the truth, um, that, that, and, and, and you only have to look at the two scenes with Jane Alexander. One, she's, you know, you know, shrouded in darkness, hiding behind these bars that, you know, of a staircase that make it look like prison, you know, refusing to talk lots of distance. And then the next time they follow up with her, she's out on a garden patio having tea. You know, there's just something like she's, she feels like she's fresh. She feels unburdened. So in this mm. moment, you're seeing a lot more people coming forward, a lot more people here and, and, and their relief. Now the burden is now on the, the journalists to keep, you know, hammering home and find new sources to keep pushing, pushing the story further. Yeah, I think that's right. I think um, this is another thing that I realized like watching this movie, I, I know this is a very, very basic observation, but um, the sheer quantity of speaking roles in this movie yeah. Uh, it, it just strikes. I know. I, I, again, I know this sounds like a dumb observation, but like, bear with me, and maybe you'll you'll still think it's dumb. <laughs> but like, uh, you know, let's try, let's try to see how it goes. But like, it just feels to me that like the number of speaking roles in this movie is massive, and oh, just yeah. compared to a normal movie you'd go watch in the theater today, uh, that's not an Avengers film. You know, and it's it's largely a comment on the fact that like mid-budget movies. I mean, the budget of this movie in 1976 was eight and a half million, so that's like you know a good chunk of change. But like mid mid-budget movies in the United States before COVID had had largely vanished. Yes, and uh, so a movie like this or a thriller movie like this 
most of them would be shot with like, you know, eight characters, right? Or like, it'd be like one location or five locations and like far fewer characters than what you have here. And you'd be like, why would you even need the sister character? That makes no sense. Like just excise that character. It's going to make the shoot easier. You're going to have to pay less people, pay fewer people. Um, But nope, the sister character is an extra person. And so then you end up kind of thinking to yourself like, okay, well, why would they make that an, a different character, right? And, and you have the opportunity to kind of read these interpretations like what you read into it. Um, but yeah, I, I think if this movie was made today, A, it wouldn't be, and B, uh, or, 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 or it, if it was made, it would be, you know, an HBO miniseries or something like that, right? Um, yeah, but it's... B, you know, they would just make that one character probably is my, is my guess. Yeah, it's, um, it's a really frustrating thing. And I know someone who watches and consumes as much culture as you do, and, and particularly I do, is that there's just something. Um, so, you know, no matter how good, a, you know, a, or engaging a story is for me, it's like there is just some of those traps that mid budget sort of like, you know, uh, like sort of excision of characters for, you know, by committee, you know, we need to make this smaller. We need to make this streamline. You can just see it. Like, it's really frustrating. You're like, there are eight, there are eight people in this movie who are talking and the rest of them are extras. And it's like, there's not just eight characters in things, you know, like, it's not like a, (laughs) like if you're in a space movie, I get it. But if you're in an office, you talk to people, you, you know, there are people that go in the doors and you do things and, you know, and, and I think that the approach um, really frustrates me when you watch it. And if like, there's, if you see all these like background actors who are just there, like, you know, not ever speaking, just sort of mouthing things quietly as you know, that they need to do to save the crew money so that they don't like talk over a piece of dialogue. It's important. Um, there's nothing more infuriating to me. Like I am immediately taken out of my suspension of disbelief if I'm not in the place, if it doesn't feel like something. So yeah, it's just, it's, it's like a, a day's gone by thing. Um, and you know, like, like you said, these mid, these midget, mid budget movies get ground into th- something in, in the contemporary times. And even like in the early two thousands, um, they started getting ground down and, you know, let, let's make it smaller. Let's trim it down. Let's keep cutting it. And I think that, really unless the director or you know foreign money came through or you know an actor who has had all the pulling power like threatened to stop making the movie um those things all just got kind of became really mediocre because they just started trimming too many things and excising the actual unique heart of whatever it was but and what's even more striking is that all the president's men is is made at a time when watergate had flooded consciousness it would be like if contagion was released in 2020 like mm. that's the only comparison I have is that, you know, in a time when we're all we're talking about is a pandemic, a pandemic movie comes out and people actually engage with it and love it. And it has an enduring quality. Like that's, it seems really crazy. Yeah. Um, well, I think one of the things that this kind of filmmaking does do is it really aids in the verisimilitude. Like you said, yes. um, you feel like, Oh, I, I have no idea if every major player in this story was represented, but it certainly yes. feels like it was, you know, yes. it certainly feels yeah. like they were. Um, it doesn't feel like, Oh, that character is a composite of like six characters. You know, it doesn't, sometimes you can sense that you can sense like, uh, I'll give you an example. Like I recently watched a movie called, or not a movie, um, miniseries called Chernobyl on HBO. Yeah. Gotcha. Uh, not recent, not recently, like a year ago. Um, and that was a great, great miniseries but then multiple times i'm feeling like watching i'm like okay there's no way one person did all this stuff (laughs) right yes but here you you have characters that show up for like you know literally a minute or two minutes in this movie and then you never hear from them again 
And uh, it's like, oh, I believe that someone could have actually interacted. That was the fullest extent of their interaction with Woodward and Bernstein. Um, so it does kind of help to have a cast that's this uh, large and diverse. To it, it aids in the feeling that you get from watching it. Absolutely. And, and you know, in this movie, there's a couple of notable ones, which is, I think it's good to mention if, if folks are, um, if folks are listening that the, you know, the first one is um, that the Washington post city editor, Barry Sussman, there was just, there was another city editor who had uh, a significant role, um, uh, you know, apart from Martin Balsam's character and then um, Jack Ward's characters in the newsroom and Bradley that kind of was excised. But again, the, you know, as you put it perfectly, the very similitude of the movie is that there's enough editorial representation there that you don't, no one feels like they're missing. And particularly at the tail end of the minute that we're specifically talking about, if any folks have read the older president's men book or you you're wanting to, there's actually a fascinating sort of series of events that lead up to the finding of, um, the, the finding of all the sources that are referenced in, in this moment. So w- when we're talking about um, Donald Segretti's character and all the characters around him, um, that, that went on for months. Like Segretti was found, he was a source and he refused to talk to the papers. He, you know, refused to speak to lawmakers, pled the fifth for a long time. And there's actually quite a big chunk in the movie um, that Goldman and, and Pakula and, uh, and, and Redford have all sort of excised and gone, okay, we need to speed this up. Um, and they sort of fast forward to the time that Carl gets in front of him, but it's, it's, you know, you are happy for the movie to take that sort of uh, dramatic license to kind of move us forward in time rather than us have to go through all of that. Just, just to keep the pace, to, to keep telling the story, to keep it flowing. Indeed. Indeed. Yeah. So Dave, I want to ask, cause you know, uh, fans of Slashcast have heard you for many years, and 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 those sorts of things. You know, talking movies. What's you? Do you have a like a, an affinity for the sort of um, uh, the paranoia thrillers of the seventies or New Hollywood, as it were? Like, because I, you know, I know I've probably heard you talk about it, and met many people are listening who who are fans of the shows that you've done. Have heard you talk about all sorts of different movies, but I, I can't remember specifically uh, uh, you talking about that one kind of movie or that kind of. Um, uh, emphasis on, on a particular genre is is this paranoia genre or the new Hollywood genre, especially where this movie came out? Is that something you know films that you constantly revisit or that are important to you? Uh, I'm I'm ashamed to say I can't say it is. You know I have a lot of admiration for these kinds of movies. Um, love Alan Pakula. Uh, I think he's like super talented director, and I, I love many of his films. But they're not. There are always movies that I more admire than that I really. Then, viscerally enjoy then they, watching. Yeah, you know what I mean? You. Yeah, like I, I, I watch this movie, All the President's Men, I'm like, this is a really well-made movie. There's many portions of it that are like indelible to me, you know? Um, uh, obviously, like probably my favorite moment from the film, and I can't believe you didn't invite me on for this minute, Blake. No, I'm just joking. But there's that moment at the end where, towards the end, where... Um, uh, Dustin Hoffman has the phone call, right? And he's like, okay, if it's, if you want me to do the thing, like, uh, I'm like, stay on the phone for 10 seconds, you know, like whole thing. I'm just like, this is such a, like a brilliant scene, like brilliant tension, just, like so much tension just from this phone call. That's like where the words being said are so basic, but it's like it, it, so much hangs on this, you know? Yes. Um, so I, 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 you know, it, it's not that I don't enjoy all the president's men. It's not that I don't like it or respect it or admire it. It's just like, when I, uh, you know, uh, I, I feel like I'm a simple man with simple pleasures. Like, you know? like, um, 
I like uh, I like my explosions and my uh, you know Mad Max Fury Roads and such. Like I, I, I'm more like listen that I was just I just rewatched um, Jackie Chan's like Police Story too, which like that the story for uh. that movie is absolute garbage but <laughs> the you know the action and the film the uh, filmmaking and the stunts are incredible and you know those are the movies that i like like are my kind of comfort food um, yes not necessarily this so it's not that i don't like these movies um it's just more like my go-to movies are not necessarily the paranoid thrillers oh look and we can you know if we're talking comfort movies you know uh, uh, there are many times in my life where instead of a warm blanket i've just put on lethal weapon you know there, there's yeah. no there's nothing nothing better than I'm getting too old for this shit, you know, and, uh, and, and much of an affinity for yeah, the b- crazy boomerang wild kids in Mad Max road warrior, you know, like that's, you know, I'm, I'm all in, I'm all in for those sorts of things being your comforts. No, I just, um, the reason I ask is cause I find that, um, if you do have an affinity, like these kind of, ter- you know, Manny Farbus has called it term termite art. Um, that ter- these sort of termite art process movies, you know, the spotlights of the world and the older president's men and the Zodiacs, um, you know, knowing your hometown, um, the Zodiacs of the world are those, you know, strange comfort movies because they're all about process and investigations and tireless pursuit and all those sorts of things. And, and um, you know, the movies of Michael Mann also have all of those things that people love. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I just, I often wonder, you're, you're, I don't yeah, I, 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 I do. I, I, I do really like those movies. To be clear, you know, yeah. um, I like uh, competence porn. Is is yes. how I describe it, right? That's a great one. That's a great phrase. Um, yeah, and I, uh, I, I think there's like there's a lot of pleasure to be derived from watching people do their jobs really, really well, um, for sure. But uh, I'm just thinking about like, okay, what are the movies I go back and like revisit all the time? And it's yes. not necessarily. I don't go back and watch Spotlight all the time. You know what I'm no. saying? So, um, so yeah. So there is one moment in here where, which I thought was really funny because it feels like a continuity thing for Dustin Hoffman. We always tease contemporarily the great Tom Cruise for sort of mandating running in all of his movies, you know, like, you know, you have to run, you have to do a crate. And now in mission impossible, you have to risk your life uh, in stunt form for, 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 for our pleasure essentially. Um, And I just laughed sort of watching this scene again going, well, actually sort of 76 Hoffman, you know, you know, 75, 76 Hoffman with marathon mans and this, and like, um, even Braddock and the graduate, you know, running, I'm like, Hoffman had a little corridor there where he was the guy who liked to have some running in his movies. And, uh, this is a, like a little scene, the only scene really in the entire movie where we see the urgency that he's sprinting out of the Washington post office, chasing Woodward down the street to jump in his car. And I was just wondering if there's, there's any others you could think of, of Hoffman sprinting at this time in his career. I've just been Googling it as we've been talking, going it's funny that, that he's actually, uh, taking a little bit out of the crew, you know, le- leading off for the cruiser uh, playbook there. The only thing that comes closest to it that I can think of is like, I don't know. My my knowledge of Hoffman sprints is not is not exhaustive. <laughs> but, but the but the one I guess the one movie that I that immediately comes to mind is Outbreak. The um, yes, the action movie. It, it, it was kind of like Dustin Hoffman's attempt at being like an action star, in my opinion. <laughs> yes. Um, and so I don't remember any like memorable sprints in that movie, but it was like. <laughs> That's kind of like the tone that I think it was going for. But, you know, it, it does raise another point in about this movie that I think you see in this minute, which is that uh, it, it felt like a, a, little bit, a, a little bit loose. The movie itself felt a little bit loose. And what I mean by that is, like, characters, like, make mistakes um, in, yes. like, line readings 
or in their behavior or in their blocking um, that is just left in the film. Yes. Um, and like in this scene, I believe he like stumbles trying to get some of the words out when he's in the car. Yes. And it, it adds to the, again, it adds to the verisimilitude, but like, I'm just like, oh, I'm not used to seeing that. Typically they would not, it almost sounds like it's improvised. You know what I'm saying? Like what he's saying. And I think that that adds to the feeling of the movie, but there's this later scene um, and maybe you're going to get to it or maybe it already happened. You tell me, Blake. Um, but there's a scene where... <laughs> Where they sit on the couch, like Jason Robard's couch, or maybe it's Ben Bradley's couch, but like at the Washington Post, and um, like Dustin Hoffman like leaves his pack of cigarettes like right on the couch in a, in a place that it's not supposed to be, and like Robert Redford reaches over to like remove it because it's not uh, supposed to be it's, there. It's 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 actually he ashes on oh, Robard. Ashes, ashes, ashes. That's right. That's right. It was, he, and, it was and, and I was like, that's, I, that's not supposed to be there, right? It, yeah. it has happened. It's around the 60th minute. It's one of their first oh, yeah, yeah. like face-off scenes with uh, with with bradley proper like a lot of the times they've been they've they've kind of and this is the first sort of scene where they're with howard's and martin balsam's character they're there in the room with bradley for the first time and hoffman just allows ash and 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 would you, you probably by covered it during that episode of the show i'm yeah, sorry i did not listen no to no it. no that's no that's the this is the portal right it's it's all this is what i mean about the portal dave it's like eventually you talk about those things and how how there are through lines in the entire movie. And no, I love talking about that because it's so, it's so of their character. It's an of their character moment. And like, I love those left in bits in this movie because in any large movie, especially when you find that something has to be really fastidious and especially a docudrama like this, you know, you've, you've got, you, you have the the burden of authenticity and people's familiarity with the story and the characters and the people who are involved and all those things. Um, I love when there are those flashes of brilliance that happen by accident and they keep them in because it's, it's more natural, you know, Redford stumbling. Does anyone speak English? I mean, does anyone speak Spanish? That's like a great moment, like wiping the ash off the chair. Maybe it's because they've done a couple of takes and Hoffman had the same cigarette. So the cigarettes like burning down yeah, and they yeah. come in and do it. It could have been like several takes in and it's like, no, that's the take because it's the one that actually shows these guys blurring the line between character and performance and doing what their character would do because Redford, the actor, if he just was focusing on how Woodward would deliver, he might've just ignored the ash, but he's so in Woodward's fastidious, like, I can't believe you just dropped ash on Ben Bradley's couch that he just wipes it off. And that's like half the performance is how those guys like embrace and embody these people, these real people. And like the, the Woodwardisms, cause he wouldn't, you know, he's such a, you know, a neater guy than, um, and then Bernstein is, but you wouldn't tell from his apartment, but he's like, I'm going to, I don't want you ashing on Bradley's couch. Come on, man. Come on. Yeah. Not cool. Not cool. But yeah, <laughs> there's stuff like that that was left in the movie that I'm just like, Oh, it's, it's nice to see like, there's this kind of looseness to the movie that makes it feel more like a documentary. I mean, not, not in terms of cinematic style, like a documentary, but just like, it feels like we're actually witnessing actual events versus this is a movie that, you know, there's like 30 people behind the camera or anything like that, you know? Yeah. I, I, it's a really fine line, right? Because it's, it, I, you know, we talked about it a lot on heat and sort of found out things later um, doing that project is, you know, Mr. Michael Mann, who was on the show talked about Pacino having every take done in the movie in six tries. He's like, he's like, Al would usually do six takes and we'd have absolutely everything we needed and we could absolutely move on. And we got into a habit of doing more takes 
like where Al would go, let me do a wild one and just do something crazy in the scene. And some of those are in the movie, but I think it's like a real, you know, maybe it's like a mastery level of control that you can like, you have a very distinct vision for what the scene is and then something really natural and organic happens and you, you have, you, you, you're wise enough to take the acknowledgement that that's actually better. Like that's better than what I had in my mind Yeah. Of, from the scene and then keeping it or an editor in, um, in, in this case going, that's the best take because it actually cuts through the nonsense. Like every, it feels really real. And so, yeah, I, I, that's a, that's a thing that I admire in any filmmaker that you can get to the point And, you know, you hear about it with people like Scorsese and those things. It's like so fastidiously in control, but also very aware of where there can be organic pieces of brilliance that can pop up and be great, you know, versus someone stylistically like a Fincher, who's like, I'll do 150 takes <laughs> until you get it the way that I have it in my head. And then we'll move on. And only then when it's done, well, you know, exactly the way that I imagined it will be will go anywhere. I started seeing a backlash to that kind of style of filmmaking on Twitter recently, you know? Yeah. The idea that like, maybe, you know, I'm not saying I agree with this, but I think some people are saying, you know, maybe if you need a hundred takes to get what you want, like maybe you're not that good at directing people. <laughs> maybe, I'm not, again, I'm not saying I agree with that point of view, but I'm just saying like, started seeing that point of view. Like, it's interesting, you know, when, when we started seeing that kind of thing float around in the popular culture, uh, it's like, oh my gosh, what, what a genius. Look at this yeah. amazing genius that like <laughs> is so exacting, you know, uh, incredible film craftsmanship to make someone do a hundred takes <laughs> and then turn to his assistant and say, delete takes one through 99, <laughs> you know? And it's like, that's amazing. Um, but I think like, Obviously, with uh, with a lot of stuff that's been going on in Hollywood and in society as a whole, um, you know, uh, I don't know that that style of filmmaking is going to be uh, in favor for that much longer. You know, um, I, I think like people start to realize, hey, um, maybe uh, that doesn't make you a genius. Maybe it just makes you an asshole. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> uh, again. I'm just I'm just saying what I've what I've seen online. I'm not saying you're, you're, you are just reporting the, the I'm just the, reporting. You're just reporting you know, the facts. The word on the street. <laughs> the word on the street. And you'll be an uncredited source. Um but uh I I'll just uh, I, th there there is that strange thing and and it's also I think it's also about style, styles because you know the great Sidney Lumet is famous for rehearsing the living daylights out of his performers before they even walk onto the set. And so you never really hear of a Sidney Lumet movie where he does a hundred takes and yet some of his movies feel so economical, so pitch perfect, you know, every, everything is happening on the frame and it's like people are prepared in those moments. They're so ready for, to, to do what they need to do on the set on that day to, 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 you know, hit the film in budget and those sorts of things. And I think it's, 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 yeah, it's like you're starting to learn and there's a bit more of an archive of, of, you know, people learning about what different directors techniques are that sort of like, I can't imagine, I can't imagine you would need to do a hundred takes if you rehearse people for a month before you started shooting. You know what I'm saying? Like I rehearsed them for a few weeks before shooting and did the whole movie in rehearsal because then by the time you got to the set, you'd know what you wanted. You could say, no, do it more like this in private in rehearsal rather than like on a set when there's 500 extras walking around. We did it 120 times because some guy in the back of frame wasn't walking right. And it's like, yeah, God, this is great. Like it feels like it's craziness. Yeah, indeed. 
Well, look, Dave, um, I'm mindful that you're so incredibly busy and I wanted to thank you for coming on the show. And, uh, and it's just, it's just an absolutely huge treat to talk about movies and to talk about even one minute of one movie with you. So I just wanted to say a huge thank you for being a part of the show and uh, you'll definitely get a mention, if not a direct callback for the episode, but you'll definitely get a mention in uh, your favorite <laughs> minute slash minutes that are coming up, um, uh, which is the, if you hang on for 10 seconds, you'll do it. And if I, I might even call you for five minutes to just spout some uh, words, even play me a, a voicemail and, uh, and I'll throw it onto the show. But man, it's been a real treat to talk to you. I'm a huge fan of everything that you're doing. Um, I'm super excited about the return of the Topolowski files. Um, he's, an unfathomable legend in my mind and so it's awesome that that's coming back culturally relevant um everything else that you're doing uh, just look it's a it's a huge treat to have you on the show it's great to be on blake uh thanks for inviting me that was the incredible dave Chen, David Chen, thank you so much for being a part of all the President's Minutes. Uh, if you guys want to follow what David is up to, the best place to go is to his Twitter, which you can find at at Dave Chensky, um, D-A-V-E-C-H-E-N-S-K-Y. You can go to Culturally Relevant, which is his most sort of uh, frequent podcast. Um, you can find that at culturallyrelevantshow.com. You can also go to his Patreon. So patreon.com forward slash Dave Chen. You can hear us talking inside baseball on Minute Podcasts and all those things. Uh, Dave is a, a guy I hugely admire. And uh, the Tobolowski files are coming back. Ooh, that's an exciting one. Um, thank you so much for listening, guys. At ATPM Pod for that. Um, at One Blake Minute on Instagram and on Twitter. OneHeatMinute.com. Mail at OneHeatMinute.com if you want to reach out to us. 100 episodes down coming up with the next one oh my goodness thanks for listening